0: Our scripture reading today will be taken from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. You can locate this on page 1055, 1055, in the Bibles that are provided on the back of the pew in front of you. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight fight of faith, and lay hold on eternal life, to which you have also called and were confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment with one spot, blameless unto our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed, the only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in approachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Amen.
1: Good morning. Good morning. What a wonderful day! I like the change in temperature. It's getting that time of year that I like it, and uh, I'm thankful to be here. Have a couple of quick things. Please be prayerful for uh, uh, the Burchets that were married last night with Ray and Brittany, and what a wonderful thing that was uh, to see and to get to know them. Here recently has been a blessing to me, and they're both very godly people. And Ray has got some incredible spiritual goals out in front of us. So be praying for them and also those of you that are here that fit into the college age. Uh, you may have seen some announcements come through the bulletin. Uh, John Michael and Seth Roselle have done a good job trying to promote it on social media uh, and, and talk individually to those who are of college age. Now you don't have to be in college, but we are looking for high school graduate through about 24 to 25 years old, and the varsity class will be starting this morning. And, we as a staff have seen, and some of our elders have seen the need that our college-age students don't fit in with our young adults group because they're not at the same stage uh, in life of paying bills and owning property and doing things and working full-time. There's just a different uh, mentality of that, a different group. And for a long time, our college-age students have not been in Bible class. And we see this as a great opportunity to give them something focused on their age on both Sundays and Wednesday nights, and we're thankful for Greg Cole's being willing to teach that this morning, and John Michael Kennedy is going to teach that uh, on Wednesday night, they'll do the fall focus that we're starting today, and those of you who have not seen the announcements that we've put out, if you need to read Matthew chapter one and two, you may wanna do it here in a minute while I'm speaking, if I put you to sleep a little bit, but be prepared for that, and each week, you're gonna get homework to do a reading in Matthew, And we're not going to do an expository study of Matthew verse by verse by verse. We couldn't do that in one quarter. But we're going to examine the king's life in Matthew's gospel. And we'll talk a lot in our classes about why we're doing that and why we're doing it uh, in Matthew. And so for Bible Class Emphasis Day today, we wanted to start talking about the king and what that means. It's difficult for us as Americans to think about the idea of a single ruler over all things. One guy whose decisions affect the entire kingdom. He's in sole authority over everything. And that's difficult, I think, sometimes in our attitude towards God and towards Jesus Christ that we don't accept his kingship and his authority, his majesty. Some of the songs that, that Philip aptly chose to lead today deal with that topic. And I think it's strange and unusual to us because we live in a nation who doesn't have one overall supreme individual whose will is what the entire government is run by and his choices. And that's strange to us, we live in a country where the government is is ruled by the people, as romantic and naive as that notion is becoming. We don't know what it's like to be under one king and one authority, and I think because we're an individualistic nation, we're a nation that thinks about our individual rights and our individual opinions, it, it makes it very difficult for us to submit like we should to the authority of the king. Even as we come together in worship service this morning, I think about how kind of importance do we place upon worshiping God, to come into here on the first day of the week. And the Greek word in the Bible that's translated worship means to prostrate ourselves before the creator of the universe. And how do we, what kind of priority do we put on that? Do we get here on time? Do we dress appropriately? Are we of the right frame of mind to be into that? Or do we just treat it like something we need to do on Sunday mornings uh, to get our check mark next to our little box and come in here? Do we make it less important than work or athletic events or anything else in our lives than to be before the creator of the universe? And when we do that, what we're saying is we don't honor the king, God, and we don't fear him and I think also that comes in when we don't respect his commandments. You can assign whatever language you want to to it, but when we deliberately disobey in a habitual and unrepentant form the commandments of God, it's because we don't fear him enough. Now, none of you here, if you were going before a king, and you understood what it was like to be a king, especially in the ancient Near East, and you had a certain time to be there, and you were were supposed to address him in a certain way, and he told you to do something that would not have the slightest inkling about being late, or not addressing him appropriately, or not doing what he said. Because you would be in fear from your life. But unfortunately today, we don't fear for our life from God, physically at least, but we ought to fear for our spiritual life. And I think that's sometimes why it is difficult for us, in the United States especially, to give that up. Because we don't know what it's like to have a king or a lord above us, and I thought about some of the things that I think of when we think about those words up on the screen, a king uh, or a lord. In ancient history, what we can see in our next slide is that kingdoms last longer than republics or democracies. The Greeks tried that, the Romans tried a republic, but if you want something to last a long, long, long time, it's an absolute monarchy, and in your picture up there, the first picture you see that would be on your upper left, I do have my left from right, right? Your upper left is the tomb of the first king of the Persian Empire, Cyrus II. He's called in Isaiah 1 the Messiah. He is the anointed one because he was chosen by God to deliver the captive people of Judah back to their homeland. He's described with that same Hebrew word that we used to describe Jesus. Not equating the two, but what's God saying is I'm anointing this man. And he lived a little over 500 years before Christ. The guy on the right-hand side, those of you that were alive and cognizant in the 1970s will recognize him as the last Shah of Iran. In 1979, he was deposed from being the king of Persia because that's what Iran is. So we see an empire that lasted for 25 centuries. Whether you called him a sultan or you called him a Shah or you called him a king, it was an absolute monarchy for that amount of time. And those of you really probably recognize the picture in the lower left-hand corner, of the grand Ayatollah Khomeini, who is the Islamic leader that brought down that rule in Iran. So we see how long they may last, and perhaps those are what kings appear to be like for you. Or even in our next slide, we look and think about some of you guys that like kind of medieval history and the history of Britain. You may recognize those pictures as King Henry VIII. Some of you guys have heard of that. And then every American patriot's favorite king is on the right-hand side. That is King George III who was in charge of England when the United States revolted against them and fought the Revolutionary War. So perhaps that's the image that we have of a king. In American culture, we may see these images right here. We have the king of pop that we have assigned to them. Some of you guys that sit over here may not recognize the king of rock and roll that's in the upper right hand corner. One of my favorite things is the king of the monsters which is at the bottom and those of you may have seen that in a movie lately. Or oh, we have my favorite movie character of all time, the Lord of the Sith. That's my favorite guy of all time in a wonderful story. In the ancient world, perhaps, we thought about these kind of kings, and I know this picture is a little bit strange, but the one that's mummified on the upper left-hand side is Ramesses II, as he lays today in the British Museum, over 3,000 years after he ruled in Egypt. That's how people viewed their kings then. A the Little oil of olay would clean him right up and he would look good as new. But they preserved their bodies because their god kings, who were gods and kings, lived forever. And I can promise you that no one, no one at all in 13th century Egypt would have dared defy Ramesses II, who was recognized as one of the greatest kings in the over 30 dynasties that Egypt saw. The other funerary mask that you see on the other side is from King Tutankhamun, a famous king, not because he did a really good job or anything, but because he's one of the few people that's tomb was left undisturbed. So that's how beautiful they looked at their kings, that they cast their face in gold and preserved it for a long, 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 long time. And those of you that have seen pictures of the pyramids, those are resurrection machines built by the Egyptians, not by slaves as some ignorant people teach, but by Egyptians, so that their king, the God, would live forever. And then lastly, we think about what the ancient Near Eastern people would have thought. The guy at the bottom is Octavian, better known to us in the Bible as Caesar Augustus, who was in charge, that's the first Roman emperor, who was in charge at the time that Christ was alive. That is what, in the mind of Paul and Timothy, would have been a king and a lord an absolute overlord and monarchy over everything. They would have no comprehension whatsoever about a Republican or a Democratic government. It wouldn't register it in their minds at all. So I tell you all that, think about what maybe our mentality is about kings, and then think about what their mentality is. Because until we put ourselves in the mindset of the people in biblical times, we will never understand what the scriptures are saying, if you put your 2014 goggles on, you won't understand the scriptures. We have to go back and understand what they were thinking. When you think about a king, do you ever think about this picture right here? Is that what we think of as we think about people that had gold masks put on them, bodies embalmed and kept forever, great huge uh, monuments made to them, like we saw of Cyrus II, and we think about the tombs of Egypt that were a thousand years old before Moses was even born, that are still standing as the ancient wonders of the world. Do we think about our king and what he did for us? The inglorious way that he died like a filthy criminal, that he was beaten like a dog. If somebody treated Jesus, a dog today, like they treated Jesus back then, that person would be put in prison for mistreating an animal the way that they treated our king and our Lord. So as we think about what our king did for us, and that's the creator of the universe up there. From John chapter one, all things through him were made. Yet he was able to come down here and do the things. And then God exalted him, as we'll look at in Philippians in just a minute. So what does our king expect? The kings of the ancient world expected obedience to their authority, to follow their rules without question. And our God expects the same exact Thing. and that doesn't fit in, that's a square peg and a round hole in our mind, because we think we're going to do things the way we want to do them, and that's okay, but that's not what God accepts. He does not accept that. Nowhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament does God accept that. So let's dig into our text a little bit, and you're like, Tim, what does that have to do with 1 Timothy chapter six uh, that Garth did such a good job of reading? As we look in this epistle, and I encourage you anytime you're doing this, especially in a short epistle like this, read the whole book. Don't ever study a book by going and grabbing a chapter or two or a verse or two out of the middle of it. See what you have as you come into this. In this epistle we have Timothy being warned about false teachers. He's told about the mission of Christ. He's talked to about prayer and the role of women in the church. We see the qualifications for elders and deacons given in chapter three. And we see a continued emphasis on adherence to the truth given here because both the epistles written to Timothy focus a lot on false teachers and what they're gonna come to do to destroy the body. And I think all too often we worry about what false teachers are doing outside of the body, and we don't worry about what the Bible talks about, and that's false teachers in the body. False teachers outside the body can't damage the body, it's false teachers within the body that damage the body. And we see in chapter five, as we come close to this chapter, talking about widows, and who's supposed to be on the widows list, and what the expectation is uh, of widows, and what the expectation of how widows are to be treated in the church. And as we approach our uh, lesson this morning, in 1 Timothy 6, three through 10, we see specific talk about false teachers pursuing gain. And a famous verse in chapter six, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Don't misquote that and say money is the root of all evil. It's a love of all kinds of evil. And keep on reading, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains, with many pains. It is the chasing after things of this world and the false teachers that were talked about at the beginning of chapter six are doing it for dishonest gain. And we can imagine this new thing comes on the scene, Christianity, it's becoming popular with people. Well, just as today's culture, when somebody sees something becoming popular, What do they do? They try to figure a way to make money off of it. Uh, And false teachers were seeing that same thing then, and we see false teachers after the same thing today. I like to watch watch religious channels from time to time and just see what they say and also what they ask for and what they expect out of people. A lot of them teach some really good lessons. Uh, I've learned a lot of things from some of them, but a lot of them are seeking after dishonest gain. And the pulpits of the Church of Christ are not immune to that either. And so don't think for a minute that we are because he's talking to a man who stood in the speaking privilege in churches of Christ. So if we think we're immune from that, then we're saying the Bible's not true. But what does Paul say in contrast to this? But as for you, he says, "O man of God. We got some verbs here that I think are interesting. Paul says flee, pursue, fight, take hold, and keep. It's interesting the language he begins to use, and you'll see where I'm going with this here in just a minute, so bear with me. The language that he uses, man of God, he's talking Timothy. We see that language used in the Old Testament, talking about Moses or David. Or most interesting to this conversation is Elijah and Elisha. And you guys that are familiar with the stories of first and second kings will know that these two men were men of God who fulfilled a prophetic role, they performed miracles, they stood up for God against evil kings. So they were righteous, godly men in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. Just like Timothy was being told, you're probably gonna have to stand alone a lot of times, you're gonna be alone sometimes in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. He was in Ephesus most likely when this letter was written. So he was in the midst of a city that was centuries and centuries old, almost a thousand years old by time, and polluted with temples to false gods. So Timothy was not in a church-friendly environment. It's interesting language that he uses in that. But he tells him, in contrast, as we dig into this a little further, to flee from conceit, from quarrels, from controversy, from discontent. This is what was going on earlier on chapter six. This is what people were doing. They were stirring up trouble. And those things have no business in the Lord's church. If you are busy about those things, you need to get your life right with God. Because you cannot claim to be a Christian and have your life being busy about those things right there. If you're the kind of person who likes to stir up controversy and slander and gossip and constantly run down your other Christians, you can't claim to be a Christian because your behavior claims very differently. Or you're a Christian, it's on the verge of being very lost. But Paul giving him a contrast says, I want you to run away from this, flee, but I want you to pursue, which that verb means run swiftly after righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Boy, we see that word gentleness used a lot. That's how Peter says we're supposed to share the gospel with those who are making ready defense to with meekness and with gentleness. He says to take, to fight the good fight, to stay away from quarrels. You know, so often in the scriptures, I thought about 1 Corinthians 9 when he talks about running after a prize. In 2 Timothy 4 when he says I fought the good fight, I have finished the race. In chapter two of 2 Timothy, he asked him to suffer as a good soldier. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 he says wage the good warfare. In Ephesians chapter 6, probably the most familiar to us, is put on the whole armor, of God. Paul constantly uses athletic and military metaphors to describe the Christian life, because that would have made sense to his listeners. They lived in an era of strong military presence, and Paul in Ephesus, which was a Greek city, a Greek colony originally, would have looked towards games and athletic events as of high priority in the world. It's said in Rome that bread and circuses, which circuses in that day were not ring tops with elephants walking around, but they were horse races or events, that as long as the people were given bread and circuses, the people would be happy. So entertainment such as athletic events were a big deal in that time. And Paul uses those metaphors to talk about the spiritual life. He also asked him to take hold of to grab onto and I thought about this picture here. If that was a bar at the playground and all you had to do was fall a few feet or a few inches, you wouldn't be that scared and your knuckles would be nearly as white as if that bar was hanging over a 100 foot or 200 foot drop down to your death. But he tells Timothy, I want you to take hold of the eternal life. Grab onto it and don't let go. Let it pull you along like a skier behind a boat. Grab hold of it and don't let go. He asked about that good confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate. Many of you that have studied Matthew remember. Pontius Pilate finally after their discussion looks at him and says, are you the king of the Jews? I don't know if if, if, if Pilate is asking a rhetorical question there or he's even wanting to know a little bit about what this game plan is because he would remember a time of the king of the Jews at the beginning of Jesus' life when the Roman appointed king, Herod the Great, would have been over the Jews, and even we see kind of a puppet king of the Jews even through Paul's time. So he said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and says, it is as you say. But Pilate would have not understood the spiritual aspect that Jesus was talking about. So Timothy also made that good confession. We don't know when exactly Timothy became a Christian, but we know in Acts 14 is when Paul comes to Lystra, his hometown, and Timothy sees the wonderful example of Paul getting stoned nearly to death and dragged out of the city and then comes back, which would make everybody want to sign up to be a Christian when the representative comes to town and he's stoned and thrown out. But we come back to Lister in Acts 16 and Timothy is recruited by Paul that he is spoken highly of by the brethren. Somewhere in there, Timothy made the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of the Jews and he put on his Lord in baptism and became a Christian. We know from Timothy's career and the way that Paul relies on him that he was a staunch and stalwart Christian. He also tells him to keep the commandment of his Lord Jesus Christ. And that word in Greek means to watch over, to maintain the security of, to maintain the status of. And our elders are given that responsibility but so are the members of this congregation. We are to watch over and guard and keep the commandments just like a soldier would watch over whatever watch he's assigned, it's a critical duty. The dereliction of duty of not falling asleep on a watch or doing a poor job of that is a terrible thing in a military term because you've exposed everyone else to danger by your problem and by your disobedience or by your laziness. And so we think about what that word means. We can't keep commandments of our king that we don't know. And if you don't study your Bible and study the scriptures, and I mean beyond just the 45 minutes we'll have in a little bit and beyond Wednesday night, I'm talking about digging into them. You can't possibly keep and maintain the status of something that you don't know. You can't do that. It's impossible to do it. If you think that David and myself and your other teachers are gonna be able to feed you enough of that for you to survive, you're wrong about that. So we move into our closing kind of thoughts as we look at the doxology that's given by Paul here. And I think when you misread these verses 15 and 16, you may think that he is referring to Jesus Christ, but he's not, he's referring to God. Because in verse 15 he says, which he will display, that's the second coming of Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Who knows when Jesus Christ is coming back? Jesus said, only the Father knows. I don't have any idea. Only God knows when I'm coming back. He who is the blessed and only sovereign Uh, or potentate, some translations say. That word in Greek uh, is the root word that we get our word dynasty from. So it's talking about a ruler. The king of kings and the lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. And here we get a little bit more Old Testament that Timothy would have known because his mother and his grandmother taught him the scriptures. He remembers the story of Sinai when the Lord descended on the mountain and he said, nobody else can touch this mountain. Don't approach. This mountain, don't come here. Only Moses can go up. And only God dwells in unapproachable light because he says, whom no one has ever seen or can see. We've seen Jesus Christ. Mankind has seen Jesus Christ. He has manifested himself here. And you say, well, I don't know, Tim. I don't know if what you're saying is right. We think about what was the purpose in Paul saying this to him. We turn to chapter two of Daniel. If you've got time, turn over there. Uh, in your books, chapter two of Daniel. And it's up on the screen. If you don't have it, this is Old Testament language. It's much like John's wording uh, and use of language in the Revelation, in the apocalypse at the end of the Bible. You can't read Revelation without understanding the Old Testament because that's 90% of the symbols and the words and the numbers and the, the circumstances that John uses in Revelation are from the Old Testament and Paul here is putting things in language that Timothy would've understood from the Old Testament. In chapter two of Daniel, the situation is here that Daniel has not only interpreted the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar the second, He has revealed to Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was. Nebuchadnezzar had these dreams that wouldn't let him go to sleep and he summoned all his magicians and his wise men and his soothsayers, some of the types of people from that neck of the wood that you're gonna talk about in Bible class that the New Testament calls the Magi. He summoned all those people, he said, I want you to tell me my dream and then interpret it. And they were like, well, maybe we could interpret it, but we don't know what it is, boss. You gotta tell us the dream. And so he had them ready to put him to death because they couldn't tell him. But Daniel, by vision of God and clairvoyance from God, can not only tell King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he interprets that dream. And what's the result of that? In verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar, this is Nebuchadnezzar II of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the guy who is all-powerful, probably the most and greatest king, the most popular and powerful king that the Babylonian Empire had ever known, his father had thrown out the Assyrians and established this empire. This was a great man by worldly standards. He falls upon his face and pays homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering of incense be offered up to him. Then the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God, still says your God, he don't say my God, but truly your God is a God of God and the Lord of kings and a revealer revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery to me. This earthly king, who would have been called a king of kings, says your Lord and your God is the Lord of kings, the Lord over me. For an ancient king to admit that is a ridiculous thought. It's preposterous in the minds of people that don't believe the Bible. They say there's no, That's why Daniel's not true, they say, because no king in the ancient Near East would ever say that. But we know it's true because we have it here in God's inspired word. We think about, back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, and it'll be up on the screen if you don't want to turn there, but we think about what's going on right here as Moses is relating to this second generation of Israelites in previous chapters. We'll see... I'm gonna tell you about your forefathers in the golden calf and how they disobeyed God and how I got mad and broke these two tablets and God's punishment for me was I had to carve out the next two myself. He made me do the work after I broke them, but I brought these back down. And he says in 1017, there's a reason that you need to obey these things. And he starts that in verse 12. What does the Lord, Yahweh your God, require of you, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord with all your heart and all your soul. That's what he requires of you. There is no negotiation to that. That's what he requires of you. And in verse 17, he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The book of Psalms says the same thing in 136. But We see a transfer of this. And as we finish up, we want to think about this from our church. In Matthew 28, we often think about verse 19, which we, we have declared the great commission of going out into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there's a reason for that in 18 because he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So this kingship passes on to Jesus Christ and he earned it on the cross. That's where he earned it. Philippians chapter two would tell us about that when it talks about every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. You know, those verbs in Greek are not future tense. They're present tense, that meaning that Jesus is in authority now. I know a lot of times we think about those verses and we think about one day this world's gonna bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord whether we confess it or not. And God is God and he is king of all things whether we confess it or not. Jesus Christ has already been given that authority. It's not like he's gonna be delivered that in the end. And we think about that things as we close up in Revelation chapter 17. Well, why do we talk about Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords? Tim, if 1 Timothy 6 is talking in Old Testament language that Timothy could relate it to and would have struck a chord in his mind as he was raised as a child, well, I just told you that God transferred all authority and on earth and in heaven to Jesus Christ. And that's what we live under. The Bible tells us that Christ is the head of the church in Ephesians chapter five. He is over all things in the church. And one day, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, He'll take the kingdom and he'll take it back. He's got it on lease right now from God and he'll deliver the kingdom back to the Father. And when John is talking in Revelation, again, using that Old Testament language in seventeen fourteen, he's talking about the enemies of God, which at that time most people would have thought that it's the persecution of the Roman Empire being driven by Satan. He says, they will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings and those who were with him are called and chosen and faithful. His audience would have been, a Jewish audience would have been like, Yeah, we remember those words. We remember King Nebuchadnezzar saying them. And remember Moses saying them at the foot of Mount Sinai, or excuse me, in the plains of Moab as we almost entered the promised land. Those, that language is familiar to his audience. And then he flips over in chapter 19 of Revelation when he talks about, which I know this is hotly debated, but in my opinion, it's not the second coming of Christ, but is the coming of Christ and his armies to defeat those who are persecuting his Christians. And he talks about in 11, I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And he says in 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and we know from this that it's describing Christ here in Revelation. And we don't have time to teach all that today, but you can read and see. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Remember how John described Jesus Christ in John chapter one, his gospel? The Word became flesh. The Word was with God, and the Word was with God. So he describes it here. And he goes on down in 16. It says, on this robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, what can I give to take with you tonight? But the God of the Bible has supreme authority. And we ought to start recognizing that and we ought to start honoring that if you're not doing it right now. Because one day, Jesus said, the king will separate the sheep from the goat. He uses that language when he talks, and that's not a parable. That's at the conclusion of some kingdom parable, but it's not a parable. It's talking about what's going to happen And Jesus Christ has full authority over all things right now until the end of this age. And he has given commandments. He tells his disciples in John, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So the inverse of that is, if you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. That's simple, plain thought through. We have to obey the king and his authority. My final question to you is about the king's judgment. And I was referring to Matthew 25 and 31 through 46 when he separates those sheep from the goat, the sheep are gonna be the ones who fed the hungry, they're gonna be the ones who clothed the naked, they're gonna be the ones who visited those who were sick and hurting, and the ones on the other side, the goat, I'm using the wrong hand, but the left hand are gonna be the ones who did not do those things. You ever think about times in your life when you were afraid? I remember back the first time I really remember being afraid was I was starting playing football for the first time in the eighth grade, and I weighed about 110 pounds, and I was about two inches shorter than I am now. So that was many, many pounds ago, and just only a couple of inches ago. So I looked like a stick, and my dad said he, afterwards he was really worried I'd just break in half when somebody hit me. But I remember they put me on the B team, and I was a linebacker, and only in title alone was I a linebacker. But I was out there, and we had this kid that was a running back for us, and he looked like Hercules. It was about his third trip through the eighth grade. He was a big old guy, and he probably weighed about 170, 175 pounds, and some of you guys think that's not big, but in, in the 80s, that's a big eighth grade football player. And I remember he would, got handed the ball, and I was at linebacker, and the line parted in front of me like the grass. You know, when you see one of them rhinos charging somebody in those things in Africa? And he started coming through that hole, and it was just me and him. And I remember thinking that I've lived a good life. And, I, and he tripped and fell. And I remember my coach came up to me afterwards, a big old grin. He was also my Bible teacher. He came up and he said, "Boy, you got lucky today." He said, "Boy, you got lucky." And he just nodded his head, and he was right. There I was in my big Rex specs, about 110 pounds. I would have been creamed. I mean, it looked like a rhino coming through there at me. I was afraid. I remember another time I was afraid was when Presley was born, and I thought my wife was going to bleed to death when they took her into the hospital room. And I didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know for the next seven or eight hours whether my wife was going to live. And I remember kneeling there in that room. My wife's blood and equipment all over the place and telling God to take me instead of her, and I meant every word of it. I was afraid of what life would be like without my wife. That was truly true fear. I didn't know how I was gonna raise a daughter by myself. I didn't know how I was gonna live without my wife. And I was truly afraid. And it's times like that that we really get humbled because we're powerless. And that's when you're really afraid. That's why you're afraid of the dark. You're not afraid of the dark. You're afraid of what's in the dark you can't see. You need to be afraid of God. And you need to be afraid of his final judgment. Because it's a fear that you can't recover from and you're going to be absolutely powerless in the face of. If you're here with us this morning and you don't fear God, and I don't mean those of us that make mistakes from time to time, I'm talking about those of us who either have denied that the gospel is true or haven't ever believed that the gospel is true or we have obeyed that and we've fallen away from it by falling back into a life of habitual sin. We don't want you to continue in that state. We want to be able to pray for you. We want to be able to pray with you. We want to be able to study with you. And if you need to put on your Lord in baptism, if you understand why you need to do that, and if you don't understand why, we want to study with you some more. We don't want you to leave here this morning without having accomplished that and without appealing to those here who are called to edify and stir you up to good works in Hebrews chapter 10. Please, don't leave here this morning. If there's anything we can help you with, I ask you to come. As